calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello and welcome to the IGN UK podcast. I am Alex and this week... I'm Chris, even. <laughs> Shall I start again? I've never okay. seen that before. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the IGN UK podcast. I am Chris. Uh, this week I'm joined by Alex. Hello. And we have yet another special guest, a very special one this week. It's Mr. Neil Blomkamp, the director of District 9 Elysium and the forthcoming Chappie, which is actually in cinemas today, the day this drops. Cool. So exciting times. How are you doing, Neil? Good, man. Yeah, yeah? feel good. Yeah. How long are you in town for? Uh, I'm in town for like 24 hours. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, so I leave tomorrow for Paris, and I got in very recently. I don't know, yesterday sometime. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, thanks for giving us a, a full hour. That's yeah, very generous. No, yeah. no, no, totally. So uh, we're going to get on to Chappie, but we thought we'd kick off by talking a little bit about movie robots. And I'm wondering, what is your favorite movie robot, if you have one? I, I'd have to say my favorite movie robot is probably Ed 209 from Robocop. Um, I, think, I think that the the visual lines on it and also how it ties into the screenplay and what they were going for is amazing. So yeah, full tip it. And I think it was designed by Craig Hayes, the kind of industrial um, Detroit automaker look of that robot is tough to beat. So that, yeah. that would be my, that would be my number one robot. And is he an inspiration on maybe one of the robots in your new film, Chappie? He is, yeah. It's the moose, isn't it? It is It is the moose. I mean, you know, what? one thing I'm kind of noticing about myself as I get older is that I'm, like the influences in Chappie tend to be, hopefully, you know, the audience will tell me if I'm wrong, less influenced by other people's fiction in terms of story and setup. And, um, and the influences are like more aesthetic. So my favorite robot in history, Robocop, I want to tip my hat to that robot. And it's like, I have my own evil robot. So, you know, that's me kind of being, it's me, it's me kind of like bowing down to the, the full tippet robot. That's yeah. essentially what it is. And, and also that because, you know, I have a background in 3D, in 3D effects, um, I kind of kitbashed that robot together using a similar process to what, not, not exactly what they would have done with that robot, but the whole kitbashing model building phase of like the ILM sort of 70s, 80s way of doing things where you cannibalize other models to make something is how I made the moose. So yeah. I just bought up like a whole bunch of um, 
things like Bradley fighting vehicles and dirt bikes and and assembled the moose out of real life engineering elements and and made it bipedal and you know so yeah so wow. it started off as a, a model kit before it was a CG animated. Thing. It's well, it started off as a three D CG model kit, right? Gotcha. So, so the the thing that happens with CG is because because you like in the real world, this is the problem I have with a lot of film design, right? Is that a lot of a lot of uh, designers working today have never needed to understand like they don't come from tool and die machinery. Yep. They don't know how lathes work. They don't know what center of gravity means to design. They don't understand how like suspension works on a dirt bike. Like, yeah. They just don't get it, right? Yeah. And they can draw whatever they want and whatever they want can be realized in a photorealistic way yeah. without ever needing to go through a manufacturing process. So, and I don't like that look. Like, yeah. And that is what a lot of like 21st century design looks like because it doesn't need to be realized out of like, pa- you know, plastic and yeah. aluminum. So, um, so I, one thing that gives realism to design is, is if it actually comes from a place of realism. So now the moose is completely unrealistic. Let's assume it's ridiculous yeah. because it is, yeah. but you can still design it to look like it kind of is actually functional. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, it doesn't seem so far out there that it's from another planet. It's exactly, yeah. it's kind of, you can imagine the military constructing that in a few years time. Yeah. So in order to do that, I kind of wanted to pilfer as many real pieces as I could, right. which were designed with all of the real engineering processes in mind, and assemble them into this kind of bastardized, you know, bipedal shape. Yeah. And that's exactly what I did. And then I sent that model to Weta, and then Weta, basically they rendered him, and then they two-dimensionally painted on top of him to create more detail and, like, what their artists would naturally do to the design. Right. And then when I liked all of that, we kind of sealed it and then remodeled it from scratch at Image Engine, like, modeled every bolt perfectly. Yeah. So how long does that kind of process take? Um... Because it seems like it, a it long takes process. it takes long, yeah. I mean, you know, the process in Chappie was different to some degree from how you would normally go about doing it. And the moose didn't need to fall into this process. It was more for the robot of Chappie. Yeah. But the moose did go back and forward in the same way, although it didn't need to. But so for Chappie, um, if you imagine that the lead robot is basically the lead character, it means that you're, you're going to have to carry that robot through a thousand shots in the movie, yeah. and he's going to have to convey all of the emotion required of a lead actor yeah. with shots like this, you yeah. know, and, you know, the dexterity of like millimeter precision of hands and, and joints. So if you take simple stuff, like if you hold your, your palm up in front of you and you rotate it, the way that that's happening is the bones in your wrist are crossing over one another, yeah. right? The, the biomechanics of that. So when you build a robot to mimic what your actor is doing, like what Shalto did, how yeah. is he going to do that? Yeah. So what we wanted to do was run into, we wanted to hit every single design wall that we could hit to be like, okay, the, mo- the mobility stops at this point. Yeah. His ear is crashing into the geometry on his shoulder. We have to redesign that. And um, we did that backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards, but we always kept it in 3D. And only when we knew the robot could do every motion that... Um, that the human could do was the point that we went into 3D manufacturing, like 3D printing and milling yep. to actually hold a robot. You wow. know? Yeah, so it was back to front. <laughs> I dislocated my, my uh, shoulder playing rugby when I was a kid. Right. And like holding my palm out, I just kind of like messed my shoulder up. It always happens. Oh, no. Nice. Yeah, no, I always <laughs> do. first injury on the podcast. Yeah. No, it's a full, full sh- like rotator cuff injury, but whatever. It's <laughs> life in the big city. Well, I guess we're talking about the, the movie now. So um, where did the idea for this come from? Because I believe you first designed Chappie in 2003. Is that right? Sort of. Not exactly. Mm. Like um, Alive in Joburg 
very definitively led to District 9, which was a short that I made in about 05. This movie was not the direct descendant of the short that I made in 2003. So um, when I was writing Elysium, I, I was dealing with a lot of robots in that film. And at the same time, I was listening to the South African band, the Antwoord, the rappers. They were just playing in my house when I was listening, when I was writing Elysium. And so out of nowhere, I had this idea where I was like, what if that band raised one of these robots and it was like a sentient robot? Like, what would that be? So that was the idea. <laughs> it's a weird concept, but yeah. <laughs> that is literally how the idea was born. And then, and then if I looked back to 03, I was like, well, I, I already put a robot in South Africa. I might as well let some of the design influences of that robot carry over to the movie because why not? And so the two main things that I took were like the bunny ears from the robot mm -hmm. and the name of the company, which was Tetraval, and just kind of, you know, put them put them in 2013 when I started Chappie. Cool. And so um, what are the influences on the movie then, the story? Because, I, you know, I was making my little notes when I was watching and Robocop I wrote down and Frankenstein. And mm -hmm. what influenced this story when you were putting it together? Well, hopefully nothing. I mean, I think that pop culture just like goes into your head at some degree and kind of floats around and you may be aware or not aware of, of influences. But yeah. on paper, the only story influence, um, the only the only influence I can think of, which is non-story, is Ed 209 influencing the moose. Mm. The actual fiction, like the actual story, hopefully shouldn't be influenced by anything else. It should be a really weird story of a droid raised by, you know, by this weird band. Yeah. Um, the 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 parallels like i you know i haven't seen pinocchio in years but people have brought up pinocchio mm. and frankenstein is an interesting one as well but essentially the idea of giving life to something inanimate you know um is, is probably you're probably going to be able to draw conclusions or draw draw analogies to those works yeah sure um we had an email uh, one of the tweets let me get one of the tweets out um elizabeth marshall asked what was the most challenging part about filming the, putting the film together Mm -hmm. What was the biggest kind of challenge? I hate filming in general. Like, <laughs> right. I, I loathe filming. Yeah. <laughs> so the whole process from the day the camera started rolling to the end was disgusting. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm going to lump the whole shooting process in as really difficult. But it's weird because when I was making it, I actually sent an email to the financier of the film. And I was like, I don't know why I'm finding this so hard. And I couldn't, that's what was irritating me was like, I couldn't put my finger on what it was. But I had a really tough time in Johannesburg shooting the movie and it was just it was just hard going you know which at the same time makes me feel happy because like the worse it is making it the better sometimes it is and I I knew I loved the movie I just knew it was also like tough to make yeah do you prefer <clears throat> the writing the screenwriting process or the editing process more? no writing's even worse right okay so the order the <laughs> order the yeah, yeah. The, the, the order it goes in is writing is the absolute worst yeah followed by shooting right yeah the, the best part is the part uh, well, all of the other parts are really good, but prior to writing is probably the best part because prior to writing is like pure creative freedom yeah. where, you know, you're working on a treatment or a scriptment or whatever you want to work on to formulate the idea. And you're probably also doing artwork. So like you're designing the world and you're, you're thinking of um, just the tone and the atmosphere of everything. Um, screenwriting tends to be a very sort of mechanical um, mathematical like nuts and bolts kind of thing and it's i find it very unartistic so i don't i don't dig it mm. and then shooting's really tough but then when you go back into post like editing is awesome you mm. know working with the musician for i mean hans zimmer on this i absolutely loved uh visual effects is cool i like everything really it's just those two processes fair enough uh we had one quite funny tweet i thought james bush wants to know uh why is Charlotte copley not in it 
Right. <laughs> Obviously he is, but Fair I, enough. but yeah. you don't see him, so maybe you know some yeah. people haven't picked up on that. But I'm in, I'm intrigued um, to know what he did beyond just lending his voice to the role because I think there was mocap mm-hmm. going on and and how that worked. Uh, well, it's a, it's a lot more than lending his voice to it because um, you know for me on set it's basically like he's an actor. Like there really is no difference. If if I had made if I had designed the robot to be non anthropomorphic and it was like a couple of stories high and seven hundred thousand tons i could not have used an actor right it would be like we have to move all of these cars and this is where the robot's going to go but in the case of an anthropomorphic robot that has human-like qualities why would you not use an actor so that means like shawl on the day you're shooting it um you're not re-recording his voice later like like a pixar film he's just acting the role out and everything about it the way i think of it is like 20 million dollars of makeup Right. That's kind of how I think of it. Yeah, yeah. It's just extreme wardrobe, basically, where they paint him out. (laughs) Yeah. And was he wearing anything to make him more robot-like for him or or more gangster-like for his kind of efforts? Well, if you... Okay, so... Yes and no. Basically, you, you what you want to do is you want to you want to cover the actor in like a like a gray lycra kind of outfit, something that will reflect light in the most neutral way possible, so that the the visual effects artists know how light is hitting him and how shadows are affecting him. And also, obviously, if he's wearing like luminous red, he's going to be bouncing lights all over the set that mm. you don't want, right? Yeah. So you want him neutral. Um, so. On District 9, it was the same as District 9. On District 9, we had, like, gray Lycra outfits for the guy that played all the aliens, Jason Cope. And then his, like, genitals were, like, shrink-wrapped in, like, the gray Lycra. <laughs> so then Shaw uh, wanted to wear shorts, and he kept talking about how it was for his character. Right. It wasn't clear, though. It was actually for his character. <laughs> or his nuts. I don't know. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, Simon Collins wants to know why you gave Hugh Jackman a mullet. Um, well... I, I'm just a fan of like over the top characters and yeah. I I wanted I like the idea of blurring reality a little bit because the Unfoot was in the movie and they play themselves. So I wanted him to be Australian. I knew that much. Yeah. And I wanted him to use his like natural accent and not be not be manipulating anything. But then as soon as I came up with that, I basically just went back over the line into fakeness again and just pushed the character to some ridiculous place where I sent him an email of some Australian kid in the outback with this awesome mullet. And he was like, that looks... That's every kid I'll in do the that. back, isn't it? That's yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he was up for it, was he? Oh, yeah, he was totally up for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I sent him some other photos of like Australian farmers with that kind of car key and they have like yeah. the blue pockets. Yeah. And he was like, mm-hmm. I'm down. <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> and what was it like working with Sigourney Weaver? It was really good. I mean, both of them... Um, like, remember how I said I hate shooting? Yeah. So a big part of like hating shooting less is when you have really really talented people the 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 fame and the you know the sort of cachet that they bring with them on set at the point that you're shooting is completely irrelevant it doesn't matter right at that point you want like the best person to bring that character to life sure and you also want the person that like creates the least headaches for you yeah and so when you when you have actors that are as well known and as kind of um you know they're in that rarefied territory. They, it's incredible to have them be such normal, nice people, you know. And they, they kind of, they just make your life easy. They come up with ways for things to work smoother, not, not more difficultly. Right. And so that makes me just automatically be a massive fan of both of them. Yeah. I try to do that though. Like I try to not put myself in a position where I'm going to have like just a real uphill battle. You know, yeah. like mm. Matt was the same way on Elysium. Like just very easy to work with. Yeah. And 
it's you you you're kind of like stunned by the level of of like when you give notes as a director and they're acting as um classically trained actors you know where you're like can you do this with the line or that with the line like they really are just that good you know right. they'll do exactly what you're asking for right so you better ask them correctly because yeah. it's like it's going to be on you um so yeah i loved both of them was there much kind of to and proing like did they give you feedback saying well i think the character should be more like this um i'm trying to remember i mean that if that were to happen that would happen in the screenwriting phase right. that would be like when you handed them the script um No, I don't really remember that happening. I mean, one thing that I did compared to especially compared to District 9 was I wanted to keep the movie much more sort of improv free. I wanted it to right. be you know, much more locked down and and sort of script specific. Yeah. Um and I did do that. <clears throat> But interestingly with Hugh, I didn't realize how good he was at improv. Right. He was like crazy good. He was working with an actor at one point that like wasn't remembering his lines correctly and it was kind of annoying. So then I got Hugh I went to Hugh and I was like, listen, it's not going to work with him. He doesn't remember the line. So you go full improv since right. he's basically not remembering how to do it and just completely mess with him. And that's how I discovered how good he is, right? right. Like he completely just like dressed the dude down. It was amazing. <laughs> and so then I kind of wanted to do that more, you know, and this was right after asking Shaw to like stop with the improv. Yeah. So then improv kind of crept in a little bit, gotcha. you know, but um, Yeah, he's he's just he's just one of those guys that's an all-rounded like very talented performer, yeah. you know. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. I'm also intrigued. You must have done a lot of research and met with a lot of sort of uh, technical people about this. How close is some of this to happening in real life to having, you know, robot armies on the streets as as our police drones in effect and mm -hmm. Well, I think um you know the big distinction to make is that um What, what they term as strong AI, actual artificial intelligence, if you put that over to you know the side of the conversation for a second and you're left with soft AI or weak AI, um, in the realm of weak AI, which is basically not artificial intelligence at all, but it's really just a set of programmable responses to situations, that realm of, of, of reality, I think, is very close to us. Like if you take companies like Boston Dynamics and like, you know, their anthropomorphic pet man robot, or you, use, you, you look at some of the, the dog, the four-legged four, four uh, robots that they have, I don't think we're far away. I think we're within a decade of like actually um, technically being able to deploy a few hundred robots that kick indoors and physically behave like, you know, move like humans. Um, The discussion about actual artificial intelligence, though, is so complicated and is so deep that you you can't talk about it without getting into like almost philosophy and religion. Mm. It, it, they just all cross yeah. over into one thing. You know, you start yeah. getting into the nature of the soul and what consciousness is. And as I get older, my points of view on that seems to change. Like, I mean, no one no one really knows what they're talking about if they start talking about AI. Like even researchers in AI, I don't think know exactly. Like they can't, the term qualia is, um, is, is a word used to define experience. Like basically being conscious, like looking at a sunset, right? So scientists talk about how they can describe the inputs from like the nerve, you know, the nerve bundles in your eyes and how they run into uh, whichever part of your brain needs to decode that data. They can explain that. But the actual recognition and feeling of looking at a sunset is inexplicable. So qualia as a discussion and intelligence that can think up things that we're not thinking up, like another intelligence, you just, you get into such crazy territory there that 
that as I get older, I'm not sure is going to happen in the way that we think it's going to happen. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. when I was younger, I used to think like, ah, it's just like a given. It's a, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of neural, you know, inputs and the brain is nothing more than an organic, uh, microprocessor and you're running electrical current through it. And, you know, with X number of synapses, you're going to get like this response. And it's like, no, I don't think that anymore. I think there's some undefinable quality that is the life force that we yeah. don't understand or know. Mm. Yeah, that's my point of view now. Yeah. And that's weird, it changed during the making of Chappie. That's interesting. Because well, I've got a four-year-old daughter, so I've seen her come from, what, nothing, mm. essentially, up to now. And, and yeah. the, the way that she learns is just incredible. And yeah. how you would kind of, well, it surprises me every single day. Yeah. And obviously you're mimicking that with, with Chappie to some extent, but mm -hmm. uh, how, how that would actually become a reality, yeah. I have no idea. Yeah, it's kind of, it's like the idea that, that life provides order in yeah. the universe, you know? And if you, if you have a tree or you have a flower or something growing, it's quite hard to actually describe what force is at play that is a mechanism that is working that when it dies, yeah. that order is lost yeah. and that entropy returns. That's a very hard thing to summarize. Yeah. But whatever that life force is, because I think dogs are sentient. I think, yeah. I think sentience is just a gradient, you know, yeah. down yeah, yeah, to like yeah. where it's an insect, it's very difficult to determine. Yeah. And it just gradients up depending on how much mental capacity they have. Yeah. So what is, I don't know what is injected into any organism that exhibits life. Yeah. Interesting stuff. This that is got the deep. deepest conversation we've yeah. ever had on this podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Neil. <laughs> right. <laughs> Raise the quality. Um, okay. Right, I'm going to throw in a tweet from someone. Um, Gazamate says, on a scale of nervous to excited, what are your feelings towards directing the next entry in the Alien series? Excited. Yeah, I'm not, I don't, uh, you know, for whatever phase I'm in in my career now, I think I'm, I'm, I think two things are at play. One, I'm like relatively young. And two, I'm on a personality level, I'm not susceptible as much to the whole like fear of, of following up to something or even if it's your own work, you know, like um, Elysium not living up to the, to the what District 9 was. That, that it doesn't affect me in the mm. same way that I think it affects a lot of other artists. Like I'm willing to take big swings all the time until people won't give me money doesn't affect me like mm. that. So my thing with Alien is like, I don't, I don't sit up at night being like, oh my God, I wonder if I'm going to be able to, you know, follow in these great films' footsteps. It's more like I'm a fan of Alien. I'm a fan of Aliens. And Alien 3 onwards went in a direction I didn't want. So like, I just get the chance to try to tell my version of how yeah. I think it should have happened. It's just like pure excitement. You know? yeah. But it's interesting. Last time I spoke to you was around the time of Elysium. And I asked you about Star Wars. And you said you didn't have any interest mm. in making a Star Wars movie because you had too many original stories you mm. wanted to tell. Still true, yeah. So so is this come... I mean, obviously, Balin is a long-standing franchise. Is it just because you had a great idea that you came up with that you pursued them or...? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've definitely... Uh, you know, f I, I pursued them to the point that Fox didn't even know I was working on it. <laughs> so... Um, you know, that's, I mean, that, that in itself is just unique. Like you, you should, you should always be working on something that the studio doesn't even know you're doing. And that way you're like, I want to do that by the time it's done. And then they can decide, you yeah. know? Yeah. I think when you get hired to do something, you're in dangerous territory. But, um, so the, the truth about, you know, projects that are my own, like the, the thing that's annoying about films, is they take three years to make. Um, it's a constant thing that I that I face all the time, which is like whatever you commit to, you're going to be out of the game with everything else, mm. and you're going to be doing this one thing for that amount of time. So um, that's a very true thing. I mean, you know, that would still be my answer with almost everything. It's mm. just that Alien isn't almost everything. Alien is like the one thing that's just. I think I, I actually think it's the first science fiction film I ever saw. Right, and it's my first memory of like film. 
And uh, so it's just emblazoned into my head in a way that I, I, it would be a shame for me to not do it for myself. You know, I'll, I'll even if it even if it doesn't live up to what people want, like for my own self, like sure. I need to at least try. So was it that it was your first memory as a film? Is that what drew you to the project and made you so passionate about it? Uh, just to the world, you mean, of yeah. the first and second yeah. one? Yeah. Um, I think that what I, I think the combination of what Ridley did. And the, and the usage of Giger's Freudian sexual terror imagery um, and the setup of the first film and then what Cameron did with the second yeah. film, like what just the perfect storm of what those ingredients were and for my own like visual style and what I like. And it just was this weird, perfect unity of everything, you know. And I think that's really what it is. It's just, yeah. it's, it, I, I can't think of anything that, that comes close to, to it in terms of an existing franchise. Yeah. I mean, my other favorite character, like I don't want to participate in this world, is Batman. Yeah. And I think like the Chris Nolan Batman films are incredible. Yeah. You know, like for me, for my own aesthetic and taste, I think they're amazing. Yeah. Um, and that, that's a separate thing because it's kind of character driven. But, but Alien is a, is a unique thing for me it's a unique yeah. storm of perfect ingredients was this the first film that got greenlit via instagram <laughs> i don't know that's an interesting <laughs> question it, maybe that's a very interesting question but you you put you put that concept art out there well i think you know the thing the thing that i find that um it, it kind of ties in a little bit with, with what you were saying about living up to people's expectations and are you nervous and like th this is a little bit of the same discussion where uh where I think that people think I was like playing some kind of game with the studio where I was like releasing stuff to try to create hype to try to go back to them. And like, I'm, I'm totally not Machiavellian in that way at mm. all. Like I'm just not. And the debate was an internal debate. Actually, it was a debate where, um, I don't think I'm a movie director. I think I'm an artist and I think movies are probably like, for me, they're the pinnacle art form. But the pinnacle art form requires like tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars of other people's money that needs to return an investment for them on the cash. And that means that there are certain things that come with that that limit you as an artist, right? So you can have full control on a film. Like Chappie is about as close to having, a, you know, virtual carte blanche in a film as you can have, less the fact that it's two hours and it has three acts. And, 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 and there's a list, right? Mm. So it's like, if you, if you want to just create something that's a piece of art that just really like winds people up, you know, something hyper offensive or crazy or whatever it might be, you're in the wrong, you're making, this is the wrong thing for you. So I have that internal debate sometimes where I'm like, I'm just wondering if this is the right avenue for me. And that's what Alien was, where I was like, maybe I should just go off for a couple of years and do some other stuff. And I had this all of this accumulated work of a project I thought was really awesome. So I was like, I know there's going to be some fans out there that like this. Here you go. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's kind of what happened. And so it's not, nothing is premeditated. Mm. But And then after, I still hadn't picked a project. 2014 was really weird for me. I loved Chappie and I loved working in post on Chappie, you know, working with Zimmer, cutting it together, working on VFX. It was very relaxing. It was kind of awesome. But I didn't know what I was going to do next. And I had, I came up with so many ideas. I came up with like, many films and I just couldn't like choose one. And my apprehension with alien was that I had never worked with, um, with someone else's material, you know, yeah. and especially not even someone else at this point, it was like, I'm going to count Fincher in with, with the third one, even though the third one, I don't like as much as the first two, it's still three awesome filmmakers. Um, so 
it it's it's not about living up to it and being nervous about it. It's like I just don't want other people to tell me what to do, which mm, is a yeah. different thing. Yeah. Well, we think in this film this should happen because it happened in that one. That kind of scared me a little bit. So mm. then I was like, I'm just not going to do it. I'll put it out. Yeah. But then uh, you know I spoke to Sigourney and like she was she was I, I love Sigourney and her her wanting to execute the story that I wrote and she thinks it's the right story for Ripley that I was like, nah, I'm fully going to do this. Mm. And also like my place looks like this with all this stuff everywhere. (laughs) So Terry actually was drinking a glass in the morning when I was like leaving to go at a chappy recently. And it's uh, the life cycle of the xenomorph like on the glass. Right. And she was looking at it and I was like, I don't know what to do. And she was like, are you, is there something wrong with your brain? (laughs) She's like, I'm drinking out of a glass that has a fricking face hugger on it yeah yeah and you don't know what you want to do next yeah. you know what i mean and it's like our house is covered in xenomorphs yeah so i was like mm, you have a point yeah it was yeah. like a good good opportunity yeah so um where does this fit in is this film going to shoot when prometheus sequel shoots and are these going to be running side by side uh, I don't think they'll be running exactly side, side by side, no. but I don't want to get into it too much. Though. Yeah. Like I will try to keep some cards close to my sure. chest. Yeah. But it's, it's, um, Ridley is producing it, which is amazing too. Cause yeah. he's like one of my favorite filmmakers. So yeah, I'm stoked. Yeah. It's cool that Ridley Scott's I know, involved yeah. as well. So yeah. cool. Um, we were going to ask about the game Alien Isolation as well. If you've, mm-hmm. if you've played that. And I have played that. Yeah. What yeah. are your thoughts on that game? I think it's amazing. I mean, the you know, even from the first screen grabs, just the quality of 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 the art direction and how it look. It lo- like I'm such a visual person that um, the narrative of stuff it's like neither here nor there for me. Like sometimes it's literally about imagery. Yeah. And when I saw the images, I was like, shit, it can't be that good. And then I played it, and it was like to me, it was that good. Like, it's so well done compared to insane. the original movie. With it's so the soundtrack so good. Yeah. It's yeah. ridiculous. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's actually interesting because it raises an interesting design question for me, which is that when Alien was made, it was cutting edge. Yeah, Mother was cutting edge. And yeah. a green CRT monochromatic yeah. monitor was cutting edge. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like Aliens, the director's cut with Real 2 reinserted when you're on the colony planet. And it's like he's getting printouts with like dot matrix paper with like <laughs> holes down the side. That shit was real, man. Yeah. On the planet in that future... That was cutting edge. Yeah. So it's an interesting debate if you look at it from my standpoint, which is like, do I make my cutting edge? Is it cutting edge or right. is it actually closer to the first two? Yeah. Because I want it to be like, it has the same parent. It's a yeah. genetic mm. offspring of the first two movies. Yeah. And Alien Isolation actually made me kind of question that a lot because it's they got it so perfect yeah. with all of the late 70s, early 80s, like tech. Yeah. You know, it's really cool. Well, that's it, because you're not ex- actually exploring the Nostromo, but it feels like you are, mm. or at least it exists in the same, same universe. Same world. Yeah, yeah it's all yeah. about the same world. Yeah. I know you're a fan of um, first-person per- shooters. What, what are your favourite games of all time? Of all time? Yeah. Oh, dude, all time is just an easy answer. Half-Life 2 Deathmatch. <laughs> Half-Life 2 Deathmatch, I'll kill anyone in this building. I'll kill anyone in London at Half-Life 2 Deathmatch. Like, <laughs> that's, that's, a that's a challenge for the listeners. No, seriously. Like, it's not even a joke. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, Half-Life and uh, probably those for, for FPS, yeah. um, you know, would be my favorites. The one I'm playing a lot of at the moment is Battlefield. Uh, I love, I really love Battlefield a lot. Um, and I just moved my... Com- I had a few game computers at home and like we're selling that house. So I haven't played it in a month probably, which is the longest I haven't played that game in a few years. Uh, and I, play, I flirted with Titanfall a lot. I like Titanfall mm. too. Um, trying to think what else I've really been into lately. 
So is it primarily kind of multiplayer FPSs that yeah. you're playing? Yeah. What do you think about like some of the storylines that you get in kind of what FPSs? It feels like I, I don't know what to make of them. I mean, it's it's. I I think that I'm definitely more film literate than I am game literate. Right. But I'm actually in some senses more interested in games. Like yeah. my I mean, my background is in 3D effects, and in yeah. my favorite thing to do was modeling 3D environments, which are essentially game levels, right? Yeah. And so photoreal game levels, like rendered and realized three-dimensionally, it's a very interesting art form to me. So um, so the the what seems to be the thing that is incredible, if you if you were to grab some, you know, pers- some alien that wasn't from our planet and show them entertainment in the 21st century, yeah. if you were to show them a three-dimensionally realized, you know, level where players from anywhere on the globe can log in and face off against one another. Yeah. That is an infinitely more interesting archetype than a self-contained linear, where it doesn't even matter if it's open story or linear, yeah. but as a, an experience where these other consciousnesses are not involved, yeah. this is more interesting. Yeah. So I'm just automatically more interested. And, and I think if you're looking for the narrative experience, you're probably better off in film. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's kind of a weird, I haven't totally figured that out, but I know that I kind of just, I'm not really interested in that. Yeah. I just more want to blow stuff up and shoot people. <laughs> like, would you, if given the opportunity, would you like to be involved in like making a narrative driven like FPS game, for example? No. Okay. <laughs> no, but I would be insanely interested in, I mean, my skill set is basically designed for making an FPS, right? Yeah. I love weapons design. I love yeah. design. I love sound design. I love shit exploding. Yeah. Like I'm the dude, right? So like <laughs> blow shit up. Like, but, um, but, but the narrative part of it is the part that just, I, I don't get like, yeah. you know, I could just go straight into multiplayer. Yeah. I think it's hard with a video game because obviously you need to interact. Like mm. the story that you want to tell is not necessarily the story that yeah. I want to play out. No, that's the thing. I mean, it's it's all about it, the best way to do it if if it's not in the multiplayer environment is like it needs to be a completely open yeah. environment, you know, that has exponentially more work put into it with yeah. exponentially more avenues you can go down and yeah. outcomes and just basically make it like real life. Yeah. It's why I love GTA five so much. Exactly. Is yeah. because of that. You know, it's, the perfect it's, it's just it's it's insane how much respect I have for like how that was made and realized. Yeah. Why do you think we're yet to get a great movie out of a video game adaptation? Why do you think we don't? Yeah, that hasn't happened yet. I don't really know why. It doesn't make sense to me. P- Peter Jackson and I used to talk about that a little bit when I was going to do Halo, where we we didn't really have an answer. And you know, you can make a good film about anything. You just need a good story around it. Yeah. So it didn't. It doesn't really make co- complete sense. I mean, um, <clears throat> I I my experience on Halo, and um, you know, I was involved with Halo. I mean, let me let me summarize it. There there's I think sometimes an unwillingness to deviate slightly from the sacred source material in a way that you have to do if you're moving into a different medium. Yeah. That was what I found to be the biggest roadblock. Um, and that may be happening across the other the other films and the other IPs that, you know, that I don't know about that haven't yielded great movies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, I suspect it would be in that territory. Because, yeah. uh, you know, there are so many... Like, amazing kind of worlds that you know as a yeah. gamer myself no, totally. i'd yeah. love to explore further like metal gear solid is a brilliant yeah. example yeah why there hasn't been a film of that yeah i've like, considered it so cinematic in the first place I, I think i think a lot of it really is maybe political i mean i don't know but yeah. it's like you know you 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 kind of you you have this situation like like metal gear solid is a good example where um 
uh, what's his name? Hideo? Yeah, Hideo yeah. Kojima. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know. I'm just speculating. But yeah. you, you can, you have like these almost like rock stars in video games that yeah. make shit like that, right? Yeah. And that translation, when the director starts getting involved, it's like you're now playing with their baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, but, but also this medium doesn't translate to this one. Yeah. And I think that that crossover and the politics that happen there can create for not great films. Yeah. Um, but I, I totally agree with you. I mean, yeah. I see stuff in film, I mean, in games every day where I'm like, you know, that's just, that's just amazing. Yeah. Like, that concept is incredible yeah. right there. Yeah. And I, I think, yeah, Kojima is, he's very open about his influences within film and just general mm. pop culture. But I think I agree like he is that game. Mm. So I think yeah. if there ever was going to be a film, yeah. he'd probably want to direct it, it, it. Yeah. It's almost like you just want to get the best script written. Yeah. And let him run with it. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's probably the best way to do it. Yeah. Do you think a Halo movie will ever happen? It may. I mean, I'm so done with it and so detached from it that <laughs> yeah. I like, have no idea. Yeah. I literally have no idea. I mean, from experience, multiple times now connected to that, I can tell you that it's like politics every time yeah. has just... That's a perfect example that when you yeah. talk about a world that's really interesting, the character of Master Chief is still one of my favorite characters. Yeah. Like this guy that is fighting for something that has essentially bastardized him and removed him from the things that he's fighting for other people to experience that freedom and that you know what makes uh humans human has basically been kind of removed from him mm. and it's just i mean when you play it you're not thinking about that you're like oh he's a cool soldier yeah and he's running around blowing people up but if you actually get into the character it's unbelievably interesting um so I don't know what's going to happen with it. I mean, I would love to be an audience member and watch a really well-realized Halo film mm-hmm. because it is like ripe with insanely good concepts and material. And like the mythology is huge, you know, like all of the different planets and the species and uh, whoever does it can call me up though. Like I've got like reams of stuff <laughs> that I can, they don't need to use it, but I can just throw some ideas out there if they want. <laughs> well, I think like Bungie as a developer are very good at creating the backstory to all the kind of games in the world. Have you played Destiny much at all? I actually haven't played Destiny, but I went down to Bungie and, uh, and saw them during the development of Destiny. Right. And I always just love that. That company's cool. Like I just yeah. kind of walked, got toured around and stuff and yeah. you know it felt it was it felt like at the time like it was something that was really interesting yeah, it feels like they're creating more than just a game that's going to live mm. on the shelves for a year or whatever it might be Is my there... favorite game company is valve really mm. so did you enjoy the the sort of because it's interesting you said the multiplayer part of half-life 2 which i don't think i've heard anybody no. say in terms of their favorite game it's the no it's the single well, half-life and half-life 2 are probably in i mean again this is so subjective but in my personal opinion it's probably the most kind of interesting uh, you know, first person narrative journey. Yeah. But I also played it at a different time in my life. Like where I, yeah. I, so I don't really know how that if playing it fresh now, like how that would affect me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, back in the day, I mean, it was, it, it had a massive effect on me. Yeah. My, my, one of my friends uh, in, in the company that we, we used to work at wrote like this, like impassioned, like essay to valve about like how much it affected him basically. Right. And, uh, but yeah, I was, I was obsessive with it. Like, and, and, and then it did turn into the multiplayer thing. Yeah. I was directing commercials and I was like part owner of a visual effects company and like all the animators in the company, I would like, I literally would get on like the PA system and I'd be like, stop working on the commercial. I'm starting a server. And then I actually had like one or two guys were like, dude, I got it. We got it. And I'm like, I'm the director and we're playing the game now for two hours. And so that's probably why, like I said, I can beat anyone in London. It's probably the amount of hours that, we, that you've clocked. Yeah, up. just just using that, like you know, yeah. the bolt, um, the the iron. 
Yeah. Rebar. It's an amazing goal. Uh, amazing game. But And it, not a week goes by where we don't get asked when Half-Life 3 is coming out. It's yeah. Like, I have no idea. Yeah. Ask Valve. Ask Gabe. Yeah, exactly. You sound like the best boss ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was, I was like, man, I couldn't get enough of that. Just assassinating dudes when they're like a pixel and the the rebar is just, you know, yeah. just right in the head. <laughs> Do you, would, um, if you'd made your Halo movie, would we have not got District 9? No, we totally that? wouldn't have gotten District 9. I wow. mean, um, the best thing that ever happened to my career was not directing Halo. Uh, you know, and that's, I'm not saying like District 9 was that great. I'm just saying what happened, if you look at it from my perspective, is I got into a place where I was allowed to develop my own ideas. Yeah. And that's a rare thing for filmmakers to be able to do a lot of the time, especially in this genre. And it was because of Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh. Like the film collapsed and within 24 hours, they were like, what do you want to do next? Like, we'll help you do whatever you want to do next, which is insane because normally you'd be packing your bags and be out of New Zealand, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's, so for me, it was like this really amazing, it was like super terrible when it happened. I mean, I think we had like 40, some could even be 70 people that were like on payroll on Halo. And it was like, yeah, it was like a last minute thing. I mean, we all knew it was like dodgy, but but we were still forging ahead. And then it was just like one morning, entire project's dead. And you were able to take some of what you'd done, though, and where you and transfer it over to District Nine. No, or? no, no, no. You it never want to. You never want to do that. I no. mean, it doesn't. It doesn't. Equa- the, the the equation doesn't work that way. Like it's not like hours in mean it's going to make District Nine better. It's like it's 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 uh, the thought processes that went into creating this stuff are based on this universe and mm. this world. It, it doesn't translate. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. But, but um, there are like just, I mean, reams of stuff, you know, millions of dollars of pre-production. Crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, the question we got the most, which I'm sure you've heard before, but um, I will call people out on it a little bit. Um, Sean1neo says, any sequels planned for any of your movies? Uh, Super Smellis says, will there be a sequel to District 9? And Year of the Rat uh, says, really looking forward to Chappie, but are we going to see Vickers again? Yeah, so, so very, very District 9 centric. Yes. Yeah. Um, I talk, I talk to Peter Jackson sometimes about District 10, actually. And uh, it's, it's, it's like what I was saying earlier about this weird three-year process per film of just how long it takes. And it sort of takes you out of the game and, you know, you, you, you've got to decide what you want to make. But I, this is my answer. Like, I would love, I, I have an idea for District 10, which is really cool. The problem is I've... I feel like Chappie is the end of three films that have a similar stylistic approach to them. Chappie is the odd one out in that it has no socio-political underpinnings. It doesn't. It doesn't have my experience as a kid in South Africa incorporated into it. Um, and Elysium, although it doesn't have my experiences as a kid in South Africa, it has the same notion of oppressor, you know, in the elites and like yeah. the large population base beneath it. Um, and Chappie doesn't, but they are still part of like a, a trilogy. So, um, so moving forward, it's like I would love to realize this idea of District Ten. I have every I, I have every intention to do it. I just need to find the right time to do it to not go back to Johannesburg and shoot something similar mm. yeah. yet. That's that's basically my answer. Was that something that idea for District Ten? Was that something that was all part of District Nine that you had in your mind when you no. were putting that? So, because it kind of almost ends on a bit of a cliffhanger, and yeah. we don't know where it's going. At the time, did you not know where that was headed? No. Wow. No, I had no idea. I I had no idea to the point that I didn't. I remember walking into uh, into Peter Jackson's office, which was down the road, down the down the hall from the editing room I was in, when we had finally like the edit was locked and like the movie was basically done. And I walked into his office and I was like, you know that the ending of the film 
is like for a sequel. And he may have known that all along, but like I didn't, right? So he was like, mm, yeah, it is sort of, isn't it? And then the film came out and I left New Zealand. But no, there was zero premeditated. I was not hinting at anything and nothing was thought of. That blows my mind because I've had quite a few arguments with people about yeah. where we think the alien's coming from there and, yeah. and what his intentions are and, 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 and where that's going to go. And that's interesting. I was so sure yeah. I was right. Yeah. And yet I guess it was, there wasn't <laughs> yeah. a right answer because yeah. no, it, 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 was, it was a completely self-contained story about the Nazi becoming you know, the Holocaust victim, basically. It was it was the oppressor becoming the oppressed. And and when it's based on a character like that, it ends with that character. The the inadvertent world creation that came with it, which to me is like my perfect kind of thing that I love, like having a bunch of weird alien weapons in the back of a shack somewhere that you can discover. That's like ripe for, you know, just creative insanity. So it took a few years to kind of process like what that could be. And I think the story that I have now is like, it's what I would want to see as a fan of the first film, I think. I know I would want to see it. I, I assume other people would. I want to see it. Yeah, it's good, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's, let's... Sorry, go I, just, on, I was just going to yeah. ask, what is it about like Charles O'Capley that you love working with? Um, I think it's a bunch of things. I mean, you know, the main thing really is just how talented he is. Yeah. I mean, that's really ultimately what it is. Like, I'm really good friends with him, but... Uh, my, my whole, like, my, my knowing him as friends in South Africa, my, all of my memories of him are just him always in character. He's right. like, you know, like the loudest friend that you have right. that's like constantly like one character or another. He's like, he's a lot like that, right? right? So he never thought he was an actor and he never ever spoke to me about acting. We both spoke about wanting to be directors. And um, when... When I was preparing for District 9, I went back to South Africa and shot like a test. It was mostly to show Peter what I thought the tone of the movie would be. Yeah. Handheld documentary footage about aliens. And and I knew that for the test, he could pull off playing this Afrikaans bureaucrat to right. show Peter what the vibe would be. And then we go and find a proper actor. Yeah. And while I was shooting it, I was like, this guy is so good. It's ridiculous. And then I showed Pete and he was like, you're going to cost him. Man. Yeah. And I didn't think that that was going to be like viable that wow. he would say that. But he was like, no, no, you should use him. And so I was like, okay, that is awesome. Yeah. I didn't expect mm. that to be a reality. And, and so that kind of led to me actually really thinking about Charles as a performer and just how much depth he actually has. Yeah. And so I think Hollywood hasn't exploited that in him as much as I know there is to be exploited. Sure. And that's what led to Chappie, you yeah. know. I mean, Chappie, if you read Chappie and you think of the movie and you go to an actor to try to play Chappie, if you actually just think about it, it's yeah. extremely weird. Yeah. Like what that character is. I mean, the discussions you would get into with like traditional actors about playing that character yeah. would be like, you know, your brain would explode. Yeah. You're, it's, it's like, yeah, you're playing. It's an, so it's an eight-year-old. Yeah. But he has an <laughs> IQ of 800. Yeah. And they're like, no. Right. <laughs> But I knew that he would just cane it. And he is probably my favorite part of the film. It's Chappie is probably my favorite yeah. part of the film. The realization of an emotional robot. Yeah. Do you think that you'll always cast him in your films? Is it no. now? There's no, re there's, no, there's no reason or necessity for it to always be yeah. him. Um, so I don't live by any rule yeah. like that. But I, I um, am appreciative of how much better he makes the films right. because of how talented he is. And then just being friends with him, it's like we always just end up goofing around like, you know, gotcha. the back of me you know hating the shooting process so much right, right, right. <laughs> it's good to have a mate there yeah exactly <laughs> so, so he's got your back 
yeah. wouldn't be that awkward the day when you go, actually, you're not on this film. Not this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, Man Out of Time wants to know, what is it about the sci-fi genre that keeps pulling you back in? And, and I'd like to kind of add to that. You've talked about this; these three films being kind of mm-hmm. aesthetically or, or thematically similar in some way, shape or form. As, will the next film be totally out of that genre? Will it be t- something totally different? Oh, you're doing Alien, of course. Mm, yeah. But then after that, like, will you move away from sci-fi? Well, I see, the thing is, again, going back to the fact that I'm not actually sure that I'm a director, meaning, like, I don't have some, like, weird checklist in the back of my house where I'm, like, leading up eventually to, like, the Oscar film, you know, with some, like, riveting performance... Not, I'm not interested in that. So I have no qualms about being like, I just do sci-fi or I just do whatever. Like, absolutely no problem with that because I'm like an artist that just does what they like doing. But what I will say is this. I I need there to be in the film something otherworldly. Otherwise, I'm not interested. So for whatever weird reason, it's been science fiction. Like the stories, the the, the themes that I've wanted to touch on have just needed sci-fi. But it doesn't need to be science fiction. It can be. It can be fantasy. It can be horror. It can be as long as I am allowed to twist reality. I'm in. If if it's the only thing I could imagine doing in mundane day to day life is a war film. I love war movies. That's that's that I would do. But but other than that, no. So it's not science fiction. It's just something fantastical. Yeah, it's a little bit different. Yeah yeah. And then I'm game. Here's a question from uh, Daylight Fire. Uh, they simply wrote alien or aliens or is that the impossible is that the impossible <laughs> you know you know that it was aliens aliens was my favorite film it's not even a choice between the two aliens was my favorite film yeah. ever made but i just saw alien which was a close second i just saw alien in a in a like a theatrical projection in vancouver which i've never seen before it's only ever been on you know i was born the year it came out in theaters right and seeing it in a theater it may have jumped ahead because it's just that good. But yeah, it's it's a really tough one. Alex, Alien or Aliens? Uh, it similar. It was always Aliens for me, but then I rewatched Alien only about three months ago. And there is something very special about that film yeah. that I probably didn't appreciate when I was younger yeah. because it was all no, about no, it's colonial true. marines. It's true. So. What, what about you? Uh, Alien. Alien. Always yeah. has been. I think it's a perfect film. Yeah. I, lo- I love Aliens, but there's the odd scene, there's the odd moment, and there's bits that I think, think go on too long. Whereas Alien, yeah. I just think it's such a perfect, self-contained brilliant horror mm, film and it's yeah. such an inspired idea you know yeah i agree i want to see a good third alien movie that's what i want to see yeah mm, whereabouts mm-hmm. <laughs> does your movie fit within that do you go the horror route that alien has or the the action movie that is get, aliens can't get into it can't get let's move don't want to <laughs> i want to give away too much uh matter Bester, whatever that is um says you're great at making the worlds in your films feel real uh, what would you say is your main skill that helps you to do this so yeah the world building is pretty impressive in all three films so mm-hmm. where does that come from um i think it comes from a number of places but i mean like i suppose there's two ways to kind of sum that up like if people like what they're seeing there's there's either there, there's there's the fantastical weird elements that make it not every day but then there's also the thing that I find particularly appealing myself, which is to take the weird elements and paint them with like a brush of reality. So the weird shit actually feels kind of normal. Um, so th- that's easier to answer than the, than the first part. I don't know mm. if that makes sense or yeah, not. But yeah. So the second part, I use economics to determine the reality of things often. Often it's like when you when you talk about film design – designers just go crazy and they just come up with a bunch of cool stuff and visually it looks cool. But 
there's no real questions asked about like how do you get there and it's really interesting if you go through any aspect of your life or even when you look at history you know at the at the sort of the advent of currency it it really is money that determines how things look it's kind of incredible what's the purpose this is the purpose okay how do we achieve that purpose at the lowest dollar figure yeah. you know and when so i often use that as a way to like know that i'm designing something now, this is in the case of going for reality this is not in the case of like doing something like Lord of the Rings or you know something that's just like fantastical and amazing. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll I'll approach it from like an economic standpoint and just try to make it feel real, knowing that the actual thing is ridiculous. It's a weird concept, mm. you know. It's weird. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, we're getting near to the end of our time, so let's um, bring it bring it back to Chappie before we we come to a close. Um, you mentioned about the couple of musicians that you have in your film. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that come about, and what what did they bring to the project? Because they're quite out there. Yeah. Well, what what happened there was uh, in about 2010, I, I became aware of Dion Foote and you know their music, and I think that they're more than musicians, just because of their they're like artists that are like this all encompassing thing, and. Um, and I kept thinking I really want to put them in a film just because they're so unique. And then I had this idea for Chappie out of nowhere, which was that, which was them. It was them raising this robot from scratch. And um, and I, I knew that that even though they weren't classically trained as actors, I knew that the they create this like intrigue in people. You know, love them or hate them, they kind of like they're like mystifying and they sort of like draw you in because you're like, what the hell am I watching here? And I knew that they would create that feeling for audiences where you kind of are sort of there's a magnetic thing about them that you just you feel like you must watch so that's how i found them and then i wanted them to be themselves a few years after their their music career had tanked which they were game for so that's why they have like all this like leftover merchandise and stuff in their brain that's why they're always wearing themselves in their t-shirts um and then I had an idea for the score that I wanted to do that didn't exactly work out, and I was sort of messing with it. And then uh, Hans Zimmer has been my favorite, you know, composer since I was like 15, pretty much. And um, so I went to him, and I was like, "Can you do a score? Because the movie is about artificial intelligence, and it's like robotics, and it's like very digital. Can we not orchestrate anything? So it's an, it's it's an entirely digitally created score." And can we also put like some kind of Vangelis, like Blade Runner synth in there, like actual synth, not not synthesized synthesizer, but actual like Valve synth. Yeah. And he was like, "Well, funny you should say that because he just like bought up all of Roland's like seventies synthesizers and has them in a warehouse in L.A." And I was like, wow. "Awesome!" <laughs> and so what? I mean, what what he came up with is one of my favorite parts of the film, which is like how the score sounds. It sounds mm. amazing, you know. It's really unusual. Yeah, score, and, it's, and it's unusual. So um, yeah, so that's the music in the film. Cool. And um, you've not done a sequel to one of your films in the past, but are there more stories in this universe that you could potentially tell if this is a success and you feel like going back to this world? There are. I mean, you know, the thing that that there's like, um, there's something very creative I find about sequels. Like, I mean, it happened to me with the District 9 sequel when I started thinking about it. And then it's happened to me with Chappie as well, where it's very difficult to sit down with a blank piece of paper and just invent a bunch of shit. And, um, there's something really creative about like deburdening yourself from needing to do that and having these pre-existing characters and kind of knowing their characters and where they can go that is actually very creative. So, uh, so yes, the answer to Chappie is yes. There are other, I've thought of, I mean, Chappie actually, unlike District 9, 
in treatment form was actually written as a trilogy. So I actually know where the ah. other two films go if it ever turns out. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell us that right now? Negative. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, that's been uh, really interesting, Neil. Thanks for giving us your time and, yeah, and, and sure. talking so candidly about everything. Um, that's it for this week. But yep. I mean, I should tell everyone that Chappie is out today when this podcast drops, which is March the 6th. So um, all go and see it. And as ever, thank you for listening and watching. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, guys. It's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.